Good morning, everyone. Ooh, I'm loud today. I have to remember I won't try to talk too loud, but I want to paint you a little bit of a picture as we get started here this morning. I want you to imagine you are at a fair um, or an amusement park, something like that, and, and with you is your, your best guy or, or your best gal, and it's a beautiful summer evening, Maybe very much probably like the summer evening we're about to experience tonight, except this is Friday night. Right? You've just got paid, and there is nowhere else in the world you would rather be. The, the smells of cotton, uh, candy, and popcorn, they, they fill the air. Right? All around you is the, the sounds of children as they, they scream in joy or fear if the tilt-a-whirl is going a little bit too fast. And if you are a young man, <clears throat> or if you have ever been a young man, I should say, and if you've ever visited a county fair or an amusement park with a young lady that you are fond of, you know that my next statement is true, is there is something about the atmosphere at a fair that creates within us the masculine urge to win one of those silly carnival games in front of our dates, correct? For some reason, God chose to build it into our DNA that we want to be those strong hunter-gatherer types who provide for our ladies with nothing more than maybe our raw athletic ability or our wits. We will bring home the bacon one way or the other, except this time it's a teddy bear, not bacon. So we, we will put ourselves in these situations where we're throwing basketballs at comically small rims or we're, we're shooting you know, those streams of water from those fixed guns hoping that our hand is a little bit steadier than the opponents next to us. If we're really, really brave, we will step up and we'll grab that giant sledgehammer and we'll come swinging it over our head to the ground like some mystical Thor-like creature believing that our date is going to be impressed with our just raw masculinity. For me, I had an experience very much like this when I was in uh, 11th grade, so a very, very long time ago. I remember it was 11th grade because in our high school, uh, 11th grade is when we took our, our big class trip. I don't know why we didn't do it as seniors. We did it in 11th grade. And for my class trip, what it was was a trip to uh, Williamsburg, Virginia. Anybody ever been before? Okay, a handful of you. you know, now, the school, they say we're going to Colonial Williamsburg. That was what they sold to our parents, right? Because uh, they have to always make sure that these trips are educational to justify them. And, and Colonial Williamsburg is cool, right? As an adult, don't get me wrong, if you have a chance to go see it, do so. But for the 11th graders that I was traveling with, we were not very excited by the idea of a butter churning seminar. We were excited that we were going to get to go to King's Dominion, a, a, an amusement park in the area. My graduating class was huge. We were about 1,200 kids in our graduating class, so even though many of them did not participate in the trip, we still loaded up hundreds and hundreds of students into a small army of buses, and we made the trip south from the uh, Philadelphia suburbs down to Williamsburg, Virginia. And as I say this, I have no idea why my parents actually let me do this. It was probably a big mistake on their part. But when we got to King Dominion, it was my goal that I was going to prove my worth to the young lady whom I was involved with at the time, that I was going to win for her the biggest prize that I possibly could. Whatever money my parents sent me with for food or for souvenirs, I would risk it all in order to win this prize. Now, I've never really been known to have great upper body strength, so the hammer swing, that was not going to be the task for me. Uh, the, the, the ring toss game, you know, we have to land the rings on the bottles, too much dumb luck involved there. I would always come up just a, a little bit short. 
Uh, there's that game, you ever see a game with like twisty pole and then you have to take the handle and you have to feed it around without touching the edges or buzzers at you? Uh, that took too much fine motor skills, too much precision. I wasn't going to win at that. Each time I would try one of these games, I would come close, but I would come up short. And I would hear close, but no cigar. Close, but no cigar. Time after time, internally, I could hear the burning thoughts of judgment from the cute girl that I wanted to impress. You know, I bet you Michael would be strong enough to swing the sledgehammer. I bet you Joey, he'd be able to make that ring land on the bottle. Right? Brian would have a steady enough hand that he would not set off that buzzer. Right? She didn't say any of that out loud, mind you, but if you've ever been an insecure teenage boy, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I was determined that close but no cigar was not going to be the impression that I left my date with at the end of this trip. So I found the classic, the tried and true carnival game where you have the pedestal with the old-timey milk jug stacked up on top of it. Throw a ball, get all of the milk jugs to fall off the pedestal, and you win a prize. This had to be right up my alley. I did a little bit of pitching back in the day, so I convinced myself that this would be the one, and I, I wound up and I threw that softball with all of my might. And in slow motion, the, the, the cans, they, they, they wobbled back and forth, fighting gravity. You know, I leaned really hard to the left, trying to will them to fall. The question is, did they fall? Or was I, again, close, but no cigar? I, I, I brought a picture here. This is me standing with my prize proudly. My orange and red snake is the prize that I won. Uh, if you're asking, did they fall? Not only did I get the snake, but the girl who I won the snake for, she ended up marrying me, so it actually worked out pretty well. Yeah. Now, I've always wondered, though, what if the jug didn't fall and I didn't win the prize? My life could have turned out completely differently. Sydney and Peyton, you probably never knew you guys might only be here because of one lucky throw. <laughs> Too much information. <laughs> but close but no cigar, that's what I would always hear. And is it close but no cigar kind of a weird thing to say to kids playing a carnival game? Uh, I promise, not a long diatribe, but the reason we say this is way, way, way back in the day. We go back hundreds of years and we go to carnivals. The prizes they gave out, they weren't silly stuffed snakes that were cheaply made in China. They actually gave out whiskey and cigars at the carnival games. You know, we, we bemoan a lot about the things that our society is offering our kids today. Can you imagine if you sent your 12-year-old to the fair and they came home with a stogie in one hand and a fifth of whiskey in the other hand? It's different times. Obviously, since cigars were the prize, the jug did not fall back then. They would say, close, but no cigar. And for whatever reason, it's stuck, and we still say it. Now, I don't tell you this story for no reason at all. I tell it t today because today as we continue our race uh, through the book of Acts, we find ourselves at this transition between chapter 18 and chapter 19 of the book. And we're going to meet some folks today who are very close to the prize but have not yet been awarded that aforementioned cigar. They are so close, right? They know that they are on the right path but the carrot is still dangling there, just, just desperately right out of their reach. We are skipping a little bit ahead in Paul's journey from where we last left off in chapter 17, so I'm going to catch you up to speed this uh, real quick, I should say. Uh, if you remember, some weeks back, we, we started following Paul's, again, his amazing race, as we called it, this amazing race around the world, and we saw that Paul spent a few days in Philippi. We saw him spend a few weeks in Thessalonica, 
A day, a day or two in Berea or Berea before his haters caught up to him there. Uh, we saw that he spent just a few days in Athens. And then as chapter 18 starts, right in verse 1, it tells us that Paul left Athens and that he traveled to Corinth. And when Paul got to Corinth, as he seems to always do, he, he ran into opposition right away. But something was different here in Corinth this time. You see, Paul has a vision a vision in which Jesus tells him, Paul, no more running. He says, Paul, there is work for you to do here in Corinth. So, I don't know if I just got echoier and louder or if it's just up here, but verse 11 tells us that, that, that after bouncing from place to place, that now once he arrives in Corinth, after Jesus comes and visits Paul, he boldly sets up shop and he stays there for the next 18 months. For the next year and a half, Paul stays in one place. In Corinth, he meets Priscilla and Aquila. Corinth becomes uh, his first kind of long-term stay on his mission, this place where he's able to actually see the fruits or see the crops from the seeds that he is planting. And after a year and a half in Corinth, not surprisingly, things start to fall apart again. Again, the Jews, they rise up against him, and again, they bring him up on charges in front of the Roman authorities. And once again, as we become used to, Paul is again pushed out of town. Now, the twist is, instead of heading off somewhere new where his message of grace and hope through the resurrected Messiah uh, has not yet visited, Paul is going to begin to backtrack a little bit. He's going to go and he's going to visit some places that we have already heard of him visiting earlier in this book. If we can put the map up there so you guys don't have to stare at me anymore. Perfect. So Paul is back to his traveling ways. And what chapter 18 says is that as he's going to be leaving Corinth, he's going to be heading down to the area of Syria. Now, he, he, his first stop is a place called Sencria, which is just south of Corinth. And he brings along with him on this trip, as he heads to Sencria, he brings Priscilla, he brings Aquila, and then all three of them together, they're going to head to Ephesus. So they're going to head right across the Aegean Sea here, and they're going to head to Ephesus. Now, oh, I'm sorry. They all travel to Ephesus together, but when they get to Ephesus, Paul actually leaves Priscilla and Aquila behind. He's going to continue on his journeys without them. Paul continues his travels all the way down here to Caesarea. Uh, after Caesarea, he makes his way north on the map towards Antioch. And after that, we're back to where we started following this wild trip of Paul's. We find Paul back up in Asia in the area of Galatia and Phrygia. If you remember Galatia and Phrygia, this is where Paul had previously been, where Paul had this plan that he was going to continue to head north, bringing the gospel to all of Asia. But Jesus came and told Paul, no. He said, Paul, I understand that you have a plan. He says, but I need you to head to Greece. I need you to head to Macedonia. By now, this has been almost two years since Paul had received that message. And Paul's a little bit of a different public figure now. Paul, you could maybe say he's at the height of his public persona, his public prowess. People know the name of Paul. When, when Paul comes to town, you know that he is someone, when he shows up, that he is going to be speaking boldly and he is going to be speaking persuasively. Again, he's had this great blessing behind him now of being able to have this stable ministry in Corinth. While there, he would have been able to have innumerable debates defending the faith in both public and private. And again, important to remember that as Paul is on his 
tour by foot of the Middle East that, that Priscilla and Aquila are still back in Ephesus, uh, presumably to continue the work of the Lord there. And if you kind of look at the map and you see how Paul's travels are taking him, it does seem to look like that it's his intention all along that he's going to be swinging back by Ephesus at some point and checking in on his friends. This map in particular, and exactly what we're going to see happen today, I find particularly amazing because it makes me see exactly how God is constantly moving his people to the places where he needs them in order to spread his gospel. Right? God always has these people exactly where he needs them. They, of course, they have to be willing. They have to be able and willing to go. But the timing of the matter is handled by God in only a way that he can. And this is specifically evident here because shortly after Priscilla and Aquila get left behind in Ephesus, a man comes strolling into town, another name that you probably will recognize. It's actually our first introduction to this man in Scripture. He isn't mentioned a ton throughout the New Testament, but we do know from a history standpoint that he had an amazing impact on the first century church. This man, Apollos, shows up in Ephesus. And when Apollo shows up in Ephesus and he meets Priscilla and Aquila, he is so close. But he has not yet completely grasped that proverbial cigar. Uh, look with me in verses 24 through 28. And this is Acts chapter 18. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. So Apollos, he finds his way to this place called Achaia. Achaia is the name of the region where Corinth is located. So again, you see how this, this circle of God's people continues. But this introduction that we're given to, to Apollos, it's kind of, it's a fascinating introduction. It's also a very difficult introduction. There, there's some things that we're told in this introduction to Apollos that we know and, and we can understand fairly easily. It tells us that Apollos is a Jew. We know what that meant at this time period. Uh, it tells us that Apollos is from Alexandria, uh, which is in Egypt, in northern Africa, Right. We know at some way, somehow, that he has come to know the ways of the Lord, and we are told that this Apollos man, that he is smart and that he is eloquent, that he knows how to read and how to understand the scriptures. By that description, he sure sounds like someone who has grabbed that cigar. What, what could he possibly be missing? He knows the scriptures. He's well-trained in debating it. It even sounds as if he is out proclaiming the name of Jesus. But verse 25 says that he knew only the baptism of John and nothing more. 
And that makes this a difficult piece of Scripture. It makes it a, a piece of Scripture that it would be a lot easier, maybe even desirable, for us to just kind of write off as this one-time, off-the-wall, odd thing and just keep reading on into chapter 19. Right? Just keep pressing forward, not allowing ourselves to get bogged down in this one minutia or this one detail. Uh, the problem is, if we do that and we keep reading in the first 10 verses of chapter 19, the same exact subject comes up again as well. Uh, look at the first six verses of chapter 19. This is uh, Paul in Ephesus now. It says, It happened while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. So he's completed that circle. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So Paul comes rolling back into town. And he finds men who, interestingly enough, in verse 1, are specifically referred to as disciples. Right? They're, they're not called self-proclaimed disciples. Luke just chooses to, to label them as disciples. They tell Paul that not only do they not have the Holy Spirit, but they did not even know that there was a Holy Spirit. And Paul asks, into what have you been baptized? And they reply, we've received John's baptism. Again, not, not the easiest lifting here, but both Apollos and these 12 men in Ephesus, they sure seem to be so close to winning the prize, to having that last milk jug tumble off the pedestal, but they aren't quite there. Something is still holding on by a thread. And both of their current situations or conditions, they seem to center around this subject of baptism. And specifically the baptism of John as contrasted to being baptized into Jesus Christ. And this sounds, again, really strange to our ears. This seems very foreign. Because I think often we have this idea that, that the, the idea of having many different opinions or many different thought processes on matters of the church, we think this is a new problem or a new situation. We think that before the days of the Internet, everyone just agreed about everything. Everyone thought the same way about everything. Right? We're kind of trained to think, especially if we go back to the year 52 AD, you know, only a few decades after Christ's resurrection, that all Christians would have pretty much been on the same page all the time. That everyone who had come to believe in Christ would have had the same information presented to them, and that they all would have understood that information the same exact way. Uh, I think what we see here in these passages is clear evidence that that just is not true. Even early Christians still had people among them who were either misinformed or they were underinformed. And Apollos and these 12 men, they were trying to do the best with the information that they had been given. Right? All of them were trying their best to please God based on what it was that they had been taught. But still, all of them were coming up just short of the prize. A few things for us to grasp to make sure we understand, again, what is happening here. First, please remember, as we've talked about before, that baptism is not a new thing. It's not something that Christians invented. 
Okay, way back in Acts 2 at Pentecost, this isn't an idea that Peter came up with just off the top of his head. Baptism was a Jewish ritual of, of cleaning and atonement. Remember, before Christ even resurrected, it was Christ himself who was baptized by the aforementioned John the Baptist. Uh, in previous sermons, I've mentioned to you before how in Judaism, often when someone would want to leave a pagan society and come into Judaism, they would be baptized in this cleansing ritual before they would be admitted into the club. So remember that to these people, uh, living around the year 52, baptism was not a new idea in itself. It's interesting, isn't it, too, because Paul doesn't ask the men in Ephesus, he doesn't say, have you ever been baptized? Right, again, there is no question of if you have been. The question is, what baptism did you receive? Specifically, they mention the baptism of John. And we remember that when John the Baptist burst onto the scene as this forerunner for the Christ, uh, we all remember what his message was that he brought to people. Uh, it's in Matthew 3. It'll be up on the screen here, verses 1 and 2. It says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And then his message in verse 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. John's baptism was a good thing. But John's baptism was not being baptized uh, into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Re repentance is a good thing. And I shouldn't even say that, so let's scratch that from the record. Repentance is a necessary thing. But repentance alone does not save you. Re repentance alone is not the formula that we're given. If we flip back to Acts chapter 2, 2 Peter at Pentecost, verses 37 and 38, this is after the Jews have found out that they had killed the Messiah that God had sent them. Verse 37 says, Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance was important then. Repentance is important now, and we should not ever diminish it. Repentance is the first thing that Peter commands, and often in church today, we, we spend so much time arguing about baptism that we do end up forgetting about repentance. But we have to remember that repentance is not the end of the equation. Again, Peter did not say repent, period. Peter keeps talking. He says, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. When we confess with our mouth and with our heart that Jesus is Lord, that he is the risen Messiah, we are to be baptized into Christ. We are baptized into him, dying to the world. We go under the water and we are reborn, clean, and forgiven. We receive the Holy Spirit. We get up out of the water and we strive to pursue sanctification, knowing and understanding that nothing will ever be the same. And I wish there was a way that I could break this down and make it palatable for everyone that would hear this. But, but truly, what I just want you to understand today is that close but no cigar is just not good enough. It's not good enough when I was trying to win a cute girl, a stuffed snake, and it's certainly not good enough when it comes to my position in the kingdom of God. When you do see a baptism performed here at Meadowbrook, 
you'll, you'll, you always will notice they're performed in the name of the Trinity, in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? We are not baptizing people in the name of John. We are not baptizing people in the name of repentance alone. The baptisms that you see performed here are because an individual has decided that they are no longer Lord of their own life, but Jesus is. They've decided that Jesus is their Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he did resurrect, that he defeated death, and that he is returning one day. And when he does return, they, have, they know that, that, that what that holds for them because they have placed their faith in him alone. They know that when he returns, what they're promised is an eternity in paradise. They know that they are going to be spared the death and destruction that will come upon this world. Again, it may not be palatable for all of you, and I get that because, you know, we all come from different backgrounds. I know... Without a doubt, with just within this room, within this collection of people, I know that there are those of us who are raised Catholic, those of us who are raised Methodist or, or Orthodox or Lutheran or Baptist, you name it, we probably have somebody here from that background. But we've all come together in this church where we've all said we want to leave behind the man-made titles, that we want to proclaim to simply be Christians and nothing more than that. We've come to this church where, where we want to say, hey, let's get away from the rule of man and let's just go by what God's word says and nothing more. But what we are confronted with today in these scriptures are men who had this distorted view that perhaps what they already know or what they've already become comfortable with, that that is going to be good enough. That maybe because someone has told them that they are well-spoken or someone has told them that they are intelligent or maybe even because people call you a disciple, that they have climaxed, that they have somehow reached the summit, that there is nothing more to learn. And it's my worry, it's my constant concern that there may be some who are here with us today that may hold to the same distortion. It's my fear as someone who's commissioned to teach you the word of God that on the day of judgment there might be someone listening to my voice that are going to hear the most terrifying words in scripture. There might be someone who's going to be so close to that cigar that they're going to yell out to Jesus, Lord, Lord, I have done mighty works in your name. But close enough might not be enough to win that cigar. And my heart will break if there is anyone listening to the sound of my voice who will have to hear those terrifying words in Matthew 7, verse 23. The words of Jesus where he says, And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, you can listen to me preach for years and years and years, God willing. You can learn how to pronounce the name of every town from every map that I put up on the screens behind me. You can memorize all of the scripture that is humanly possible, and none of it alone will keep you from hearing depart from me. We should not be making it more complicated than it needs to be. The equation that we see in scripture is to confess, to humble yourself and call Jesus your Lord and Savior. To repent, to turn away from our sins, to renounce our sinfulness, and then to be baptized into the name of Jesus Christ, being obedient to his command to be immersed in the water and be born again. Please understand, I have no hidden agenda. I hope you know that I'm not making this up as I go. If your theology or your understanding of scripture is different, I'm not here to argue with you and tell you that you are wrong. It is certainly not my job to shout you down. Right? Differences, as we've seen in our scripture today, have always existed, and differences always will exist. 
But in my humble opinion, we're quite literally playing with fire here. The stakes are just too high. If you've listened to me speak for more than five minutes ever, it should be pretty evident, I hope it's evident, that I understand I am not God. So I want you to know that, that perhaps, perhaps Apollos and perhaps those 12 men in Ephesus, if they would have never had the baptism of Christ presented to them, if they would have never been made aware of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and they were to find themselves standing in judgment, perhaps they would indeed have heard, well done, my good and faithful servant. And if they did, I would never dare to shake my fist at God and say, no, God, they did it wrong. No, God, they missed a step. Right? That is not my job. What my job is, what my responsibility is, is to simply point out what is in Scripture. Right? Each of us as individuals, we have to decide if we are willing to listen and if we are willing to obey. Two last points. First one, notice how Priscilla and Aquila and Paul... When they come across these people who think a little bit differently than they do, do you notice how they respond? Isn't it interesting? They're not defensive. They don't get angry. They don't shame them for not knowing the entire testament of Christ. Honestly, it seems like they're really excited and happy for the opportunity to be having such an important conversation. Right? I wish Christians today we did a better job at this because we are so good at dividing ourselves up among these imaginary denominational lines. We are so good at recognizing and labeling what makes us different. And I promise you that that is not what Christ desires or intends for his bride, his church. And this does not mean that I have to agree with everything that is taught in every church. It certainly does not mean that I shouldn't defend the truth when I find it being slandered. What it means is that I can confidently stand in front of you today and I can tell you that it is my belief that when I get to heaven, I'm going to be standing shoulder to shoulder with people who would call themselves Catholics or Methodists or Baptists or Orthodox or Lutheran or, again, insert whatever denomination you want to insert. And I promise you that in that moment, we aren't going to be splitting hairs about whose music was better. We're not going to be arguing about whose dress code was holier or whose traditions God enjoyed more. We are going to be united. We are going to be singing praises to the same God. We are going to be giving thanks to the same Savior. As Christians, we should be doing the hard work to break down the barriers with our brothers and sisters, all while we do stand for biblical truth. Which brings me to my final point. My final point is that it is okay to stand for biblical truth. Look at verses 9 and 10 of Acts 19 quickly with me here. It says, But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them, that he is Paul here, and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jew and Greeks. So when Paul came across these people who didn't just have a, a misunderstanding of Scripture... Or, or people who are just having trouble comprehending some aspect of their salvation or their faith, but when he came across men who were speaking evil about Christianity, or he came across people in the church that were ignorant and unwilling to listen and unwilling to learn, Paul did remove himself from that situation. 
Right? He did not allow the, the, the slander to continue in his presence. He, he spoke truth. He offered the gospel. But when it was spoken against in an evil way, he left. To put a bow on all of this from where we've been over the last couple weeks, we remember again when Paul was told, don't go any further in Asia. I want you to head somewhere else. I need you in Macedonia. Here we find Paul, even though it's only been a few short chapters for us, it's been four years for Paul. And what we just read, it says now that all the residents of Asia had heard the word of the Lord. It says all the Jews and all the Gentiles. And when I read something like that, I am reminded that God always has a plan. And I hope in all of these moving pieces as we followed Paul, you've seen this. That, that God's plan, it was better than Paul's plan. And if it was better than Paul's, I'm pretty sure it's better than my plan and it's better than your plan too. The best plan is always God's because his timing is always immaculate. Again, though, our message today is don't settle for close but no cigar. Our message today is to be assured. If you have never confessed that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, today I invite you to step forward during our song of invitation. If you have never repented for your sinfulness, do it today. Step forward during our next song. If you have never been baptized, if you have never been immersed in water in the name of Jesus Christ, there's water right behind me. What prevents you? Let's pray.